Welcome to the Innovation and Compliance Podcast, part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Join us every week as we talk with industry innovators who are making compliance to help business run more efficiently and at the end of the day, more profitably. Here's your host, Tom Fox. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for another episode. And today I have Tulsa born Jenna Waters. Jenna, first of all, welcome and thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me today. Well, thank you for having me. I'm very excited about today's episode. I have to acknowledge your hometown because number one, <laughs> you're the first guest I've had from Tulsa. And number two, my father was born in Tulsa. Oh, awesome. So, there you go. <laughs> but you have a really unique professional background. One I don't get to talk a lot about. I do visit with several veterans, but they tend to gravitate more into business coaching mm-hmm. and leadership. But you've gone a little bit different direction. So I was wondering if you could tell our listeners about your professional background and really going into the service right out of high school. So, yeah, I so when I left high school, I was like many young people was like, I don't know what I want to do with my life. And people were like, go to college. And I decided, nope, nope, that's not for me. So I joined the Navy. I enlisted. I was 19, but I was one of those early kids. Like I was 18 in November in my senior year. So joined the Navy. And from there, they sent me to the Defense Language Institute, where I learned Korean as a second language. And then I moved on from there to Hawaii, where I was based at the Naval Information Dominance Command. It's a very long title, but NIOC is essentially what it is. And that's where I started my career in information assurance, information security, and cybersecurity. You know, I probably should have said not only is my father <laughs> born and bred in Tulsa, he uh, went to the Navy from Tulsa. So we <laughs> actually have that in common. <laughs> wow. You know, although he dropped out of high school in, during World War II to join the Navy. So um, why the Navy? Why not? I always joke that it's because they offered me the biggest enlistment bonus. But, but in reality, one of the reasons I chose the Navy is I really appreciated the long-standing traditions the Navy had. I mean, it's actually the oldest armed services branch. A lot of people don't know that. It was the first one that was instituted in our Constitution. And I was really drawn to that aspect of it, those, those long-standing traditions. And just, I don't know, it felt right. That's really the best answer. It just felt right. Nothing else felt right. So and I'm really glad I chose that one. Really interesting because as a son of a retired naval officer, I certainly knew that was the oldest service. But <laughs> your answer was pretty close to what my father said when I asked him why he joined the Navy as opposed to one of the other services. So, you know, kudos to that tradition and they keep that tradition up. Oh, they do. I was also interested, were you identified as or, or did you speak other languages? Were you identified as someone with language adaptability or skill? Or did you just choose that as an area that you were interested in? Um, of course, Korean is, is typically not a language that <laughs> most Americans learn. No, it's not. So yes, as uh, the, the short answer. But so obviously you understand when you join the military and you go to enlist, you take the ASVAB and that gives you a score. Well, I scored incredibly high on that. So they suggested I take one of two tests, which is one for linguistics or one for a nuclear engineer. I had either option, they offered me both options, but the idea of going to school and taking a bunch of mathematics that I wasn't interested in because I just finished doing that didn't appeal. So I went for the linguistics test and not the nuclear engineer test. And that's how I got selected to become a linguist and then 
based on that exam and the score I received on that secondary exam is how they assigned your language. So I was assigned Korean. So Korean and Chinese were the two that you had to have the highest language aptitude scores to be assigned. So how did your uh, learning language skills and then your actually use of those help inform some of your work as a cryptologist in the Navy? So a lot of my work in the Navy is classified, so I have to be pretty broad and brief in this answer, but I am happy to answer it. What I can tell you is I did operate and work on highly sophisticated computer information systems, and I worked in conjunction with a lot of other sophisticated technologies, as well as classified materials for a variety of operations and military ops. Sometimes it did require a knowledge of a foreign language and interpretation of foreign language data. But that was just one part of an overall mission set that involved cryptology, computer technical skills, radio signals, things like that. It was, it was just one part, typically, of a mission we'd be running. I also served as a team leader in which I worked with all members of armed services, so Marines, Army, Coast Guard, the whole gambit. And we spent a lot of our time as a team collecting and reporting on highly technical information that was both strategic and tactical in nature. So I was wondering if I could change the focus a little bit yeah. to cybersecurity. And that's, I think, Solar Winds put that squarely in the front of the American mind in a way that probably people like yourself already had, mm-hmm. but in the greater public. And I was wondering if you could start with just some general thoughts on the Navy's approach to cybersecurity and contrast that with what you see in uh, the private sector or the civilian world. So the difference between the public sector or the military sector and the private sector isn't so much the approach, but rather the focus. Any military or federal agency or even law enforcement agency is focused on a very global or, as I like to say, macro threat environment, whereas a private sector or a business, that focus is narrowed into a more micro threat environment in which the industry or even the specific business type, such as a natural gas company or bank, informs the risks and threats that a business will face. Military and federal agencies are concerned with protecting the country as a whole from cyber and information warfare attacks. A company or industry is concerned with protecting its proverbial slice of the industrial pie. So the real difference is simply size and scope of the threat environment. But they oftentimes, the approaches inform each other, especially with best practices and with, you know, actual technical controls that are implemented to help prevent and mitigate cybersecurity. About five or six years ago, I had the opportunity to interview the then CISO at Coca-Cola. And Mm -hmm. he said to me, look, you know what I have to protect. Mm -hmm. I know what I have to protect. The bad guys know what I have to protect. It's one thing. And we all know it. And that's it. Everything else, you know, I can live with. But that one thing. And so that's really consistent with your answer. And that really, his answer helped shape my thoughts around, you're absolutely right. At least in the civilian world, you can't protect protect everything. So the crown jewels, that's what you protect the most. Yep. So let me turn to your work at True Digital Security. And I was wondering if you could describe generally what your work is in the area of information security program development industry compliance assessments, threat intelligence, and cloud security controls? So I primarily work in compliance for the financial sector with a lot of work concentrated on PCI assessments from a very technical perspective. However, I also work in developing and executing security assessments for cloud-based systems. 
that would be Microsoft 365 and Azure and AWS, as well as sometimes Google, but the two major ones are Microsoft and Amazon. I work in conjunction with a lot of our other teams, such as the cloud engineers, our pen testing team, and our risk assessment team to ensure we're kind of serving our clients with the best, most well-rounded knowledge and skill sets that we can offer. Because to us and to me specifically, cybersecurity isn't just, you know, push, play, and pray. (laughs) To truly have an organic, robust security program, a business really has to come at it from every angle and perspective. So I oftentimes end up working hand in hand with other teams to achieve that goal. So we work really closely together with all of our clients. So one of the things you get on this podcast, if you name the title of the podcast in your remarks, is an extra gold star. Mm-hmm. Push, play, and pray. <laughs> it will be in the title. That is great. <laughs> that is so succinct as well. I've talked to a fair number of folks in your, your industry, and they've articulated that concept, but never that language. So uh, kudos, you get an extra gold oh, star for that. Thank you. It sounds like that True Digital Security really strives to bring an, an end-to-end solution. And you're part of that solution, but you work with others who help perform risk assessments and then either training, remediation, gap analysis, and full plugging of those gaps, if I can use that technical term. Would that be a fair assessment? Oh, absolutely. And we even go as far also as incident response and digital evidence collection for cybersecurity attacks. So, yes. It's all everything. So one of the things that struck me when I was doing a little research for this podcast is right on the website, it says, quote, to end security breaches, Mm -hmm. end quote. That's a pretty bold statement. Yes, it is. Why do you guys make that statement? Is that something you should strive for? Is that something that you can deliver? Absolutely. So to end security breaches, it's a very bold goal, but we're a bold company. Honestly, that's what we strive to be because we definitely want to be at the forefront of cybersecurity. But it means preventing a cybersecurity breach or a data breach from happening in the first place. But if it does happen, it also means at least mitigating the results such that an attacker will never, ever get their grimy little hands on anything valuable. So even if you suffer a minor breach, they're just stuck. Because we want our clients to have a very layered defense in depth approach that prevents them from getting something valuable like PII, personal health data, sensitive financial data, or credit card data, or even like proprietary trade secrets. Essentially, we want if they do get in your system, they don't get anything that's valuable whatsoever. So there was a couple of terms I saw in uh, some blog posts that I wanted to ask you about. And specifically, it was What is software inventory management and how does it differ from IT asset management? So software inventory management is actually, it's the process of keeping an updated inventory of all your software, your applications from even the smallest, you know, little minutia of an application used within your IT environment. So it's actually one core aspect of an overall IT asset management. What it does is it sort of enables the recording of information such as vendor, the type, as well as what's most important, which is like the software update cycle. So making sure you get all the critical security patches applied as necessary, as well as other important functions, like it keeps records of the quantity of applications software you have in your system. So you know if a new one suddenly crops up, 
as well as the size in terms of bit size of that application or software. So all of a sudden, if that bit size of a software changes for whatever reason, that could be a good indicator of compromise. So it really helps by knowing exactly what you have installed in your systems and then running so that you know when an anomaly crops up and you can see it as an indicator of a potential compromise or even just a system flaw in general. We are now uh, some 11 months into the coronavirus health crisis here in the U.S. And we're recording this in February of 2021. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering, has this health crisis changed the risks? Has it changed their approach of the bad guys or changed the approach of people like yourself uh, as well? So it hasn't so much changed our approach. It has certainly changed what attackers are focusing on. Our approach and best practice guidance is the same. It's simply the application, the scope, and focus area of the threats that have changed and grown in new ways. For example, we've seen a sharp rise in attacks on healthcare facilities and hospitals with riot ransomware and extortionware. But there's also been a decrease that we've seen in reporting to the HHS, as well as compliance initiatives for HIPAA, just due to the strain that hospitals are under right now. I mean, they have to focus on saving people's lives, not being HIPAA compliant. But we've also seen similar trends in industries like PCI for PCI compliance and uh, credit card protection. So what we've had to do is we've had to help our clients, sort of, including hospitals, including healthcare providers, really pivot very quickly without notice, usually, or very much notice, to having now a remote workforce, which comes with its own risks and insecurities. And I mean, a home network's not exactly secure by any standard, which regardless of industry, if you're a hospital or a bank, you know, it's a very difficult, manageable thing to do. So what we've spent a good chunk of our time in early 2020 doing was kind of help assisting our clients and doing that pivot and doing so in a way that helps them continue to achieve their cybersecurity compliance program and development goals, but helping them sort of maybe adjust those goal thresholds to compensate for what's going on right now. So I mentioned er, a little bit earlier in the podcast, Solar Winds, and mm -hmm. that I think stamped uh, this issue in the public mind more than it had been. And I was wondering, is the message that you are so passionate about mm -hmm. and true digital security focuses on, is it not so much resonating with people you would interact with in operation of a CIO or a CISO, but really at the highest level, at the board level, are board members finally beginning to at least recognize the issue or start to ask the right questions, in your opinion? Well, I think they're starting to ask the right questions. I think, again, what we're seeing is sort of what we see every time something like this happens, which is a sudden shift in focus to cybersecurity. And I certainly hope it's a wake-up call for really everyone, and not just corporate America, but also state, federal, and international governments as well, to work in conjunction with the private industry. I mean, currently, what we know about this attack, for any listener who doesn't know, is attackers essentially infiltrated SolarWinds servers, and they were able to insert their own malware into software updates. They were able to digitally sign these software updates, which indicates to a consumer or customer that it's a valid update. It's good to go. You know, so they trusted in its veracity and incorporated and executed that malware which was inserted into the update on their systems. 
So, I mean, I think right now 300,000 plus customers have used the platform and about 18,000 have been affected. What this attack shows more than anything, though, is that we need like a legal, our legal and structural and technical norms, even if only as expositional to what we have existing best practices and precedents. We need to help clarify precisely which core values the United States and international community want to reinforce. Because right now, what we have is almost a soft touch, generally wishy-washy approach that's kind of pre-gutted by incomplete legal definitions and broad descriptions of hopeful technical suggestions that essentially equate, yes, to hopes and prayers. Rather, what we need and what, you know, this solar winds attack is showing us again. And I say again, because we saw this with the Ukraine hack in 2015 that shut down their power systems. We saw this with so many attacks before. And so that's why I'm hoping, again, I'm hoping that this will wake us up because the U.S. and international governments, while they've verbally condemned what's going on, we need collective collaborative action on their part, along with the private sector, along with business leadership to work together to help mitigate and enforce actual consequences for these actions. We need like the genuine political will to follow through and punish those that violate sovereign cyberspace and proprietary systems, particularly when the consequences are this extreme and so many are affected by hackers' transgressions like this. And we need to do so collaboratively and together. And it needs to be on a big scale. It can't just be the US. It can't just be Canada. It can't just be the EU. It has to be all of us saying, this is not okay. Private sector, public sector, individuals, this is no longer okay. This is, yeah, I get very passionate about this, as you can tell. <laughs> but essentially, that was great. Yeah, to sum up, what I'm saying is, we need to dissuade these attackers, whether they're disassociated groups or sanctioned nation state actors, through collective action internationally, domestically, publicly, privately, and be able to impose genuine consequences, establish customary domestic and international laws that are enforceable. And if we're going to prevent the next cyber conflict from spiraling out of control into what could be a genuine cyber warfare scenario, which we nobody wants. Both international and domestic, public and private groups, you know, need to urgently act on this. It's critically imperative that they do, because if this hasn't taught us a lesson, then I'm actually afraid of what will in the future. And unfortunately, we're near the end of our time. For <laughs> I'm this so sorry. I was wondering if if the listeners wanted any more information on true digital security mm-hmm. yourself or, or really any of the topics you've talked about, uh, where can they go for information? They can go to truedigitalsecurity.com. That's my company and that's the organization I work for. If they want to get in touch with me specifically, I am on LinkedIn under Jenna Waters. Jenna, this has been a, a fascinating and in some ways terrifying podcast. <laughs> I seem but, to do uh, that. <laughs> Perhaps so we could uh, visit again uh, in a little more detail on some of these issues. I would love to. If you want to stay up to date on the latest innovations in compliance and help your business run more efficiently, subscribe to this podcast and help spread the word by leaving a review.